hello and welcome to where the where fuck, the is, fuck that? is that uh first off where the fuck are you louise today oh yes i am uh back in the magical kingdom of london londonium good old london town uh circumstances have made it so that it is more convenient to be here for now but i'll go back to my worldly travels soon enough <laughs> once, the, once the pandemic is over with and you know go to these crazy mountaintop slash crater bound uh cities that i like to visit we are apart in physicality but together in traveling spirit and that, that's the whole point of the show you know indeed so it's uh it's even more fitting than it used to be <laughs> we're as ethereal as the as the listeners right now <laughs> And it's the cities in which we as the cities we, indeed we describe uh, ghosts in the machine. <laughs> Are you ready for this? Yes. Where the fuck is Oita? Oita. Well, Oita. I see. Okay, so Oita. Uh, what? Well, tell me what it's like. Yeah. So I'll start by telling you what it is like. So you know. The Bermuda Triangle, right? Um, I am familiar with it. Familiar with the Bermuda Triangle. Actually, you find it's not actually as dangerous as people say. Really, there is just an island in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. And that is Oita. Ah. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So Oita is an island in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. But it just so happens that they have very particular laws of engagement. So anyone that passes by there has to sign an NDA uh, that says you can't speak about it. Fortunately, I uh-huh. do not care about the consequences, so I cannot speak about it. But I just have to I just have to disclose that before we go on. Are you gonna be like halfway through your description, like being like, you know, kidnapped or something for breaking this NDA? <laughs> yeah, maybe. So I'm gonna, you know, we got I'm gonna pick up the pace a little just just in case my door is broken down. Dear so, viewers, it, this is an exclusive. <laughs> yes, an exclusive take on Oita. So Oita is surrounded obviously by um this mystique as being part of the Bermuda Triangle, and of course that the weather is pretty unpredictable in that part of the world. And so the, in terms of the climate and geography, again, it's, it's an island, so it's pretty sectored off from everything. But it also has to contend with um, very powerful whirlwinds and hurricanes. They just sort of circle the island, but they never More actually... Like blow eater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, in in Oita, you'd, you'd probably be imprisoned by uh, making such a... It's a crass joke about, oh, no. their, about their, you know, their, their name. But yes, they're surrounded by powerful winds and whirlwinds that sort of keep them naturally secluded anyway, on top of the NDA that already exists. As if there is a magical magnetic field, the hurricanes slash whirlwinds can actually penetrate into the land itself. So it's sort of like Oito is the eyes of a variety of hurricanes that surrounded on a on a daily basis. So it's sort of like in the middle. It's all those of clouds and everything around it, but it's really sunny in Oita itself because you know the clouds part and it's just like a safe haven in the middle of a wind blown sea environment. 
Important question, important distinction. Do you mean hurricanes as in tropical storms or do you mean tornadoes as in twisters? Both. Oh my god. Oh boy. That's so hurricanes are more sea bond too, I think. Yeah, uh, sometimes you even get fishes like uh, being blown into Rita, and uh, most of the time, <laughs> you'd expect from an island they'd have this big uh, focus on fishing, but of course they can't actually go very far into the ocean because they'll be destroyed by the strong winds and stuff, or at least put themselves in danger. So they don't fish as much; they mostly farm, and the fish that they do gather are the fish thrown in. Uh, by the strong winds and the hurricanes yeah they're a bit beaten up they're a bit sometimes (laughs) you know you just have half a fish uh but you take what you can get in in oita yeah (laughs) outside of that vegetation and stuff it's pretty lively it's it's a lot of biodiversity being such an extreme slash fruitful climate because there's so much sunlight coming in it's as if the sun wants to stay in that one spot all the time because everything else is surrounded by clouds but it's just dangerous on the outside. As long as you stay on Wito itself, uh, you should be fine and you can thrive as a community. Well, it sounds like it's adapted to a very niche circumstance, but what was it like before, potentially even before the storms, dare I say? <laughs> there are a lot of theories on how the storms came about. Before the storms, it was just a regular old island. There was no conception that we moved the triangles a place or ships go to die or anything or disappear. It was just a pretty regular old stopping points a regular uh, triangle past, yeah <laughs> it's a regular stopping point past the ocean and then during the pirate age some powerful pirates decided to maybe hide their booty hide their treasure and then people would go to Uita in search of that treasure and then they'd get into scuffles of other people in search of treasure like three notable pirates including blackbeard has hidden his treasure there wow oh, nice you know so many people died in the conflicts for the treasure that no one ended up finding actually oh. uh it's just believed that those angry turbulent spirits rose into the clouds and started a hurricane nightmare wait wait, wait. pirate oh, spirits are the response are they responsible for the hurricanes one of the theories yes wow <laughs> the one i heard oh my god black <laughs> fear the hurricane i yeah, would watch that sounds pretty legit i've heard about it's mentioned really into pirates and of research them and it comes up once or twice and you're like hmm never heard of that place and you're like oh that's mysterious but that's what they want they want it to be mysterious that's why the nda to exist in the first place because they needed to stop people coming in and dying in search of treasure so they just decided to be erased from history altogether who wrote the nda like was it one of these pirates or is that a newish thing oh no that was made in response to all the pirates going there Ah. to try and find the, the booty uh, and then dying and then becoming angry spirits and making the hurricane problem worse. Uh, the NDA was made in response to that. And I I thought I thought it was that like one of the pirates had been NDA, so like, ah, you'll never find me, little island. Oh no, no, no. It was a it was made in response to the pirate age. I'm not sure pirates really were that respectful of documentation. <laughs> but it, maybe it was like a cursed NDA. <laughs> So yeah, that's how Sawita got its hurricanes, allegedly. But also, it's definitely how the, the NDA came about to stop all this, um, this massacre for booty. Okay, well, I mean, once you're, you're, you know, you're having your, your farming, it's very fruitful, as you said. You also might get a flying fish. What is like the, the cuisine of Oita in the midst of this absolute hellscape? 
you have plates, right? And you have bowls and stuff. I'm aware of the concept. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wita doesn't really believe in that. Like, to sort of... It's just so troublesome to go and craft the plate or, like, make it out of wood or whatever. So their plate, they, they just have coconuts, right? Oh. It's just, yeah, just cut coconuts in half. And that's their plates and that's their cups because they can do both. So they just... A lot of it's soup-based... Because that's pretty much where you can store in a coconut. It's sort of designed for that. Uh, so you okay, that's like... designed for soup. You've heard it here, folks. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's a it's a receptacle which holds liquid well. Doesn't a coconut have holes in it? You just Bottom? cut off the whole end. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know why I asked this? <laughs> I'm clearly not from Oita. <laughs> yes, so in Oita, use coconuts for for us cups and plates uh and then you you know fillet the fish which would fly in from the hurricanes and you'd get lots of different fruits you you get your papayas you get your mangoes you'd get your uh sweet potatoes as well if you're if you're fencing that you throw them all in your in your pot which unfortunately they do have to make out of metal because you can't really roast stuff in a coconut so you'd make you throw that all into the into the communal pot and then you you know, pour in um, brine and then boil it, make a soup. And then so, you wait, 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 wait. Is this an actual recipe for an eater of salt water soup finished with papaya, sweet potato, mango, and filleted fish? No, they, these are examples, but the, the, the brine as a basis for fruit slash errant pieces of meat. That's that's the, the that's the foundation for what they do, yeah. So it's just and it's really about the communal aspect of it. Everyone pitches in something, you know the ring of fire. It's like ring of fire, but with food. The drinking know? game. Yeah, you bring something from your house and you throw it in, and then your neighbor brings something from his house and you throw it in, and the the idea of it is for it to be mixed and crazy in its design because someone might pull in like goat's milk and then someone else might throw in i don't know someone from pilsen a yeah. carrot <laughs> yes and then you just boil it all together blend the taste well and then you just get a sort of like a mush <laughs> so revolted and then you drink the mush from your coconut um mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I guess the stirring process is quite a symbolic thing here when they're surrounded by constant tornadoes as part yes. of like this constant stirring of this weird broth. Maybe yeah, maybe that had something to do with how they designed it. It's called uh, I couldn't pronounce it in their language, oh, but it's yeah, just you know it's a very wholesome name. It's called the people's food. Oh, you know it's it's about the communal sense of like just throwing everything in the pot and everything everyone sharing it. Uh, so that's what you'd have for like dinner, but then for like breakfast and stuff, you just have like eggs. The snack of socialists. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, so, what are the so uh, these people seem to be very community oriented whilst in such a dangerous, strange place. So, mm-hmm. what are they like? They are quite resourceful. You see, it's sort of hard communicating with the outside world once the NDA was in place and once the angry pirate spirits started up the storms. Uh, so they had to find their own ways to get around stuff. So whilst, you know, we'd use electricity, obviously most of their stuff, 
well, they have electricity as well, but they'd be wind powered. There'd be no coal. They're completely green because they could just stick a, a what do you call them? A windmill? No, wind turbine. A wind turbine in the storm, and it'll generate enough power to you know. They just put one up for like five minutes and they take it down again. That's them for two yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. That's all you really need. So they have like a few wind turbines around, uh, which just pick up the power of the hurricanes. You know, they they're never short of energy. They have generators full up all the time. And that's really allowed that sort of energy surplus. It's allowed them to really go ham on scientific development. So there are things oh. in OETA which we have never heard of. Sometimes. But the one thing they haven't been able to figure out yet is how to stop the storms. So that's their big, their, their big go. Once they manage to, you know, control the weather, then they can expand into the outside world. And by then, maybe, you know, if you can control the weather, maybe you can reverse global warming. So I'm really banking on Oita to save us all. I mean, you're already breaking your NDA. So can't you drop us a few of their inventions that they've come up with, or at least describe them in the best way that they can, or you can comprehend with your non-Oita mind? They have automatons, you know? Automatons? Yeah. <laughs> automatons they've they've gotten pretty far into that they don't want to go outside but they still want to explore the outside world but it's dangerous for people to go out there so they just have little remote controlled robots that they'll send out into the world when they need to do like some reconnaissance or anything or and also very advanced aircrafts obviously because like i said it's the eye of the hurricane basically so they can just fly up and then over the storms Oh, pretty much all of tales of UFOs are down to Oita, I believe. <laughs> that mm, I guess that makes sense. They have such advanced technology. It literally is the definition of a UFO. Yeah. So they just shoot it up and then curves down o- up and over the storms. But so do you think in um, Roswell, uh, it's actually just one of the Oita um, crash ships that's landed and like the whole of Area 51 and everything is just built around Oita technology? Yeah, and they can't they can't admit that because well NDA. You break the NDA and they don't want to piss off Oita with their they don't actually have nukes because there's no need to develop nuclear power when you're powered by storm. But they still have some pretty powerful weapons that would make them, you know, scary enough that you wouldn't want to mess with them. I'm really taking a risk here. <laughs> Especially, yeah, if they're trying to harness the the power of tornadoes, which I don't think any country can fully withstand. Yeah, they've they've really made a big progress in that. That's why I'm hopeful for their uh, for their weather control technology. Really seems to be coming along. Let's hope they're merciful. Um, <laughs> well, what can I do in Oita apart from you know like scream and make like a mush and fly a UFO? Yeah, so you know my time there is one of the most thrilling times of my life obviously i didn't happen there by design i I shipwrecked there briefly when i was in my youth and it was a great place to to be to to hang out as as a child they have a little underground tour because they can't really go anywhere exploring around in the at the sea level so they've really dug a massive tunnel down and in that tunnel They've have more space to expand and they've created like whole adventure 
because you know they're so they're so technologically developed you can like take a boat down like a magma river and stuff oh and, wow yeah, yeah <laughs> i thought it's you were mostly... just being like like hyperbolic not not <laughs> literal magma <laughs> no because they've built metals strong enough to withstand it it's really just caves you're going cave dwelling but just at a more extreme level so it's Spicy. really hot and they you have to wear these um thermal suits that divers wear to keep them warm it's sort of the opposite so you're basically an astronaut it's like the other way around so you're just going really deep down going down these magma rivers really exploring the bowels of the earth they'd have like holographic displays as well showing their history how their technology has developed. So there's that's really their one big thing for tourists. It's not really designed for tourists, obviously, because they don't get many. But its its main design is to like teach children about Oetan history in an engaging way. So that's why they've gone through all this trouble uh, to develop the underground magma river. Cave. On your left, kids, and remember, don't get out of the lava boat, is their depiction of when the pirates died and became sea pirates. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, they have a whole, like, moving holographic story that you just stop the boat and you, you'd watch it on, on the on the cave side about, you know, Blackbeard's adventures and how he hid this treasure in Oita. And then because people had heard that Blackbeard hid this treasure there, like, you know, Captain Kidd went there and it was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to use this place too. Cause it's really, it's really out of the way. And then that's how it sort of started snowballing. Interesting stuff. Would you like to, I don't know if you would, because it's probably very boring, but would you like to hear a little bit about my information from Oita? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Oita or Oitashi which translates as big branch segment share or divide city is the capital of the Uita prefecture, which is located on the island of Kyushu in Japan. Yes, it's an island at least. <laughs> I mean, a lot of Japan is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so basically what Uita is, it's like a, a new found city. It's a combination of different places that amalgamated into one. That's why it's called the big branch or segment or share or divide city. Mm. Well, the translation isn't perfect. So on January the 1st, 2005, the town of Notsuaru from the Uita district and the town of Sagoneski, Siki, I'm going to fuck these up, from the Kitambi district were merged into Uita. So Uita is the name of the, the city and the capital. Yeah, it's the capital city of the Uita prefecture, which is like an area right. of land in Japan. Yeah. So it's over 50% humid. On a daily average, it typically doesn't drop below five or greatly exceed 30 degrees. It's pretty warm. It's pretty toasty. It's pretty fine. But what is it like? It was very, very easy and almost too too easy to find out what Oita is like because okay. they are very big into giving exact details about every aspect of everything. Great. Do they have hurricanes? They do not. Well, not That's that I saw. <laughs> well, it's good for them, but it's a shame for me. Indeed, indeed. But um, if you if you want to know, they cover 502.38 square kilometers. They have four... 179,092 people. They have 20 mountains, two rivers, 776 parks, two libraries, three art museums, four sports compounds or facilities, 210 schools, 436 medical facilities, 17 stations, two ports. They have 4,281 farmhouses, which rakes in 4.543 billion yen per year. 
so much right. information. They have 3,827 stores, which rakes in uh, like billions. I'm not going to read out these numbers. They're huge. And they have 410 industrial offices, which rakes in like the equivalent of like 18 billion or something. It's just, they've got everything about their, their city down to the smallest T. And I, I'm just amazed that there's this information is so open. But it's kind of but, impressive too. Yeah. Do they have like, I don't know, any stats about, do they have any wind power? <laughs> I did not see. I did not, anything that you re- mentioned, I did not see a comparison for. Apart from agriculture, it's quite big. Um, I guess. That's, that's uh, with so much details, you'd hope at least there'd be one coincidental. Um, I know, occurrence. but let me see. Uh, I don't think so. All I, I, I do know, I guess, that the downtown and shopping districts are located to the north of Wheat Station, but recently they have been being, it, they've been in gradual decline due to commercial areas opening up. That is, that's the biggest woo that's happened. Not exactly a tornado. Okay. Um, I can give you some interest. The history is kind of, it's not piracy, but it, it's kind of, there's a maraudering turbulence. sort of aspect to it. There's turbulence, yeah. Nice. So the wheat area is historically known as Funai, um, in the capital, which is the capital of the Bungo or the Bungo province. During the Sengoku period, which is the 15th and 16th centuries, um, there's this powerful um, Otomo clan based in Funai, and the area was like prospered off this like this key port trade basically between strangely portugal and ming dynasty china so oh okay a weird link but it's there so going to run through this i tried to break it down as simply as possible (laughs) because obviously with japan there's a lot of like oh these people established this and then this clan did this and it just goes back and forward forever following the establishment of the kamakura um shogun yeah yeah Mm-hmm. So basically, they were the federal or the feudal military government of Japan during the Kamakura period from 1185 to 1333. And members of this clan were granted the post of constable, the Shugo, of Bungo and Buzen, the provinces in this other area. Mm-hmm. So, as the Otomo clan were one of the major clans of this area, along with the Shoni and the Shimazu, they had a central role in organizing efforts against the Mongol invasions of Japan. Oh, okay. They also played an important part in the establishment of the, basically, the next version of what they became. They fall alongside those of the Ashikaga Takauji and enabled him to win a number of key battles, including the Battle of um, Sanoyama, which then helped them make a more powerful government. So it's just a series of like going back and forth, winning battles, making allies. So this is Um, against, chiefly against the Mongols then? Yeah, in in the Mongols, but also just like, battles for like power and land oh in, in um, japan itself in japan they're especially notable this is the sort of the end and most sort of interesting development um they're especially notable as one of the first clans to make contact with europeans and to establish a trade relationship with them so they're quite um quite thrifty see yeah because they were isolationists so they were sort of like at mm-hmm. first there was the, the exactly. hesitance hesitant to do that so it's kind of a rich it's interesting because it's got this rich history and yet it actually wasn't a city for quite some time it's just sort mm-hmm. of this vague area but um, yeah. Otomo Sorin, who was sort of um, the, the feudal lord or the daimyo, first introduced Western culture. And it was in Funai that the first Western-style hospital was built and the first Japanese choir was formed. So it's like this sort of um, central point of access of culture in mm-hmm. Japan is this area. So it's, you know, it's quite important. Yeah, so um, it like spread from there then. Yeah. 
then it goes on like it jumps to like 1960s and 70s about how like it became more of um, a place for steel and then in the 70s Toshiba and Canon built and expanded their plants in the inland area and then it became a major production center of electronic products such as LSIs which is like a type of circuitry and digital cameras so it sort of became it's pretty tacky yeah yeah it became tacky so that, i guess that's a link to you but yeah and then <laughs> after that i guess it just amassed in sort of um power and wealth and then it amalgamated with these other cities in 2005 cool. so that is how it got to where it is now so actually a lot going on for a city that's relatively new yeah um, well now they just gotta develop some robots and uh, exactly deep into the earth's core and then it's basically the same <laughs> <laughs> they do have some interesting food. They're famous for the intestines of pufferfish. Oh, okay. Also, another famous thing is Torreten, which I couldn't really figure out what it was, but it's famous. And okay. there's arguments between rival like um, neighborhoods of who does it better. But the two main dishes are Chinese chive pig and Ryukuyu or Ryukuyu. So basically, the idea is that Chinese chive pig is the dish of the land or like mm-hmm. the turf and ryukuyu is like the dish of the sea right and if you mix them together you get it would make your thing food. yes exactly <laughs> so chinese chai pig is they fry chinese chives with pork cabbage and simple dishes to finish with a sweet uh, salty sauce of soy sauce to make this pork um, also, they because they give specific information for everything, it was in 1968 that Oitoshi began to lay emphasis on the production of Chinese chives as a plant. There you are. Do with that what you will. But the most interesting thing is that in trying to figure out these dishes, there are multiple websites and advertising things for Oitoshi that tell you all this information, but there are multiple ways to translate the pages because obviously they're all in Japanese, yeah. whether through Google or whether through their own translation or whether through other means. And every single one provides different translations. So the sentences change every single time and none of them are fully 100% correct. <laughs> so it was a weird experience of like, I would change it to a different one. I would say Chinese chai pig. And then it would be like pig of grass. And I was like, that's not the same thing at all. You know why that is? Because they're O in it. Because <laughs> it's composed of everything. <laughs> Fair enough. The so people from what I can gather, are really, really competitive. (laughs) Because on their website, there is a page dedicated to what the city is top in or the best in Mm -hmm. against all other like cities in the area to be like, why is Oita the greatest? (laughs) Which is so niche that it must be just like a cultural thing or maybe as a parody because I thought it was a joke at first. This -hmm. includes things like the amount of money, they're the top in the amount of money they spend on roast meat in soya sauce, cooking oil, dry shiitake, and they're also the highest in the quantities of chicken that they buy. I just, it's a very weird thing to boast about. For example, they are, they buy 2,693 grams of chicken compared to filthy, filthy fuku, fukukashi, which only buys 20,400 grams. Oh, wow. Oh, they're, they're How dare them. How dare they? <laughs> With this competitive spirit, they have this like, phrase we take sky or it's we take sky we take or it's we take the sky and the sky cannot miss i could it was okay. difficult to translate so I it mean, was like mm. it's promising you know storm sky wind power it's all coming together it is a little bit the festival culture 
is a big thing too. They have the Daichi Tanabata Festival, which is the first week of August for three days. They have hundreds of decorations. Like, the way they described this was brilliant. They were so enthusiastic about describing this festival. <laughs> hundreds of decorations, stalls, stage events. They have an opening ceremony by the gun corps. There's a calvary. There's, you know, um, taiko drumming. Then there's also like, it's basically just a big parade with like parade floats in it. And they also, because the like the youths of Oita sort of com- campaign for it to be more like a citizen participation like festival opposed to like the stereotypical like Japanese traditional festival. Mm-hmm. So now people like, they have a like, competition for like the best parade float. And then they have like the citizens dance, which is when all the citizens can join in and they can do this dance together or you do like competitive dancing. So it's really nice. But a lot of the actual details I could not work out because of the translations are so bad. Right. Like they yeah. said, they have the prefectural civil war paper. Okay. Which I think is like either a civil war reenactment or it's just like confetti. It's yeah. one or the other. Could be like really violent origami or yeah, it could just know. be it could be a reenactment. Like it was so difficult to work this out. I only worked out at parade floats because I managed to find some pictures because they were kept describing it as 20 mountain cars go down the street and i was like are these monster trucks like mountain cars <laughs> no that's parade float apparently <laughs> so they perform these dances and in the citizen dance the next day um you dance to the dambu folk song chikikira bayachi which is a special rhythm of chikikirin which is like this beat on like bamboo sticks so it mm-hmm. sounds like a very basic like like a little sort of salsa thing you just sort of walk along it just seemed to love the old people sort of having a boogie on the street as they walked. <laughs> it's really nice. Stage event finishes it with 20,000 balloons, exactly. And then there is a light show of 6,000 fireworks. Nice. Should um, we add the what's their music like category? <laughs> I guess that goes under what are the people like. So I think, that's, I think that's all right for now. But yeah, they seem very, very, very proud. Competitive, mm. yes, but proud of their city. Um, and... It was really um, heartwarming because they have all these services I feel like all the cities should have. Like they have this um, free telephone interpretation service. So if you're in Oita, you um, ring them up and they help you. Like if you're having like a Japanese conversation, you can be in the phone and be like, oh, this person's saying this. And then they help translate for you. Oh, okay. It's really nice. It says, we are here to help you while you're traveling Oita. For example, when using a bus, staying at a hotel, going shopping. Like, wow. Okay. I'm completely free. So you just like, you call them up to, whilst you're interacting with someone else and they'll help you communicate? Is that Yeah, it's, it's described as assistant in understanding a Japanese conversation when visiting Oita. Huh. They're really, cool. really, really friendly and they didn't have to do that. They could just give out a guide, but they have the service. What can you do? That's rounding up all these facts because there's a lot of information, but <laughs> their website, again, humorously translates the name of the city to city of university and sometimes just university so i was convinced that it was a university town for a long time right. and i felt like are these all student activities like is everyone here young but i think in translation of uita meaning segmentation sharing dividing it translated that to universality or union and uh, then it became the city of universities and i was like that's so wrong. so it's like uh, yeah it's the city of universality yeah which goes with the communal spirit of my Oita. It does. You may recognize some aspects of this because I'm I, so far it probably sounds quite alien, but if you've ever seen pictures of Japan with um, Maki or Makan, it's like, a, you know, the small like gray monkeys. 
and they're uh-huh. like quite mischievous and they steal yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So Itoshi and um, in the bordering Takasaki Mountain that borders on Beppu, um, it's famous for these monkeys and also famous for like um, natural springs. So have you ever seen those images of like monkeys in like springs and stuff? It's this area. Oh, uh, cool. They're called onsen, which just means geothermal hot spring. They also have some great names for things, like just fantastic names. So they have the um, Takasaki Yama Park. In that is the Marine Palace Aquarium, also known as Umi Tamago, which just means sea egg because it looks like a big egg. Nice. Great. They, um, heels? they don't have any weird terms like that, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, outside the city, mountain plateaus, seaside villages and towns with these onsens. Personally, what I found that I would like to go to is the Kamoshika Shoten Bookshop and Cafe, which it looks like just someone's office and just has piles of books everywhere and like a little bar and you just go in and have like a pint or a coffee and just sit in like random chairs and read books. Sounds pretty good. Oh, okay. So it's like a library book, a library bar. Yeah, it's like a bookshop bar kind of. But the description for it is, though this website went to great translation, but so over the top in its translation. So it says... Step through the doorway of Kamoshika Shoten in central Oita city, and it is apparent that the owner, Shinsaku Iwa, has a passion for the printed word and a knack of creating comfortable environments. This is like, this is like one room, so it makes it sound like a huge place. <laughs> yeah. In a cultured yet convenial atmosphere, his loosely ordered, almost impromptu displays of mix of a mix of new and secondhand books and magazines seem to have less an eye on commerce, so messy, than as a balm to visitors browsing the shelves. Reflecting Iowa's personal tastes, his shop focuses on art, architecture, music, fashion, film, poetry through classical Japanese and overseas novels to gardening and children's books. Um, okay. Yeah. They're really banking on the on the owner's like, <laughs> it's like he's some big shot. It's like, yeah, it's just place. a dude. <laughs> Talking about the place as a reflection of him of him. That's that's interesting. It's got like, art in the walls and it says, as does the warm aroma of freshly brewed coffee that draws all to Kamoshika's cozy cafe and bar. Bring a book from the shelf to peruse here while join a light meal, caffeinated beverage, or something stronger. Wink, wink, wink. <laughs> I thought that was a nice one to end on because it's so like from a whole messy thing of me trying to work out what these websites actually meant. This one was just so indulgent. The fact like We've paid for the best English translator money can buy <laughs> for this <laughs> one shop. We, we, we've hired a poet and he's going <laughs> to sell everyone on this, on this small room with books and beer. What do you think of it? I feel like it's the most, in terms of like how much detail there is, it seems like the most lived-in place we've discussed so far. Mm, because definitely. every other city we've talked about has like had points of interest that you could pick out and talk about whereas this was just like here's our city and we do this and this and this and this so it seemed like more a more realistic portrayal i guess of what the city is like rather than just like a tourist's guide to the city you know yeah no yeah i think it's something it must be something to do with the fact that it's such a new city because mm-hmm. it feels like it's got like small time mentality of like here's everything but they've kept it for the city and they're just i don't know say something more like rome it's just got so much name to it it doesn't need to have to explain itself yeah. whereas because it's 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 new it's like hey come to us this is exactly who <laughs> yeah. we are we'd love to have you 
we'll yeah, translate all your you know conversations it's like a city in the in like the process of building its reputation which is interesting to think about because cities are things which you imagine should just always have been there but mm. that's not actually it's rare to come across a young city you know so that's I, that's pretty that's pretty interesting yeah a young city too but with still quite a long history despite mm. you know being new it's a really strange mix of kind of all the great things about it it has like a queen atmosphere despite being this quite big industrial place as described with all the money it rigs in yeah it's sort of like a liminal space like my oita <laughs> bermuda what language nice. do they speak where's the bermuda triangle anyway bermuda i, I do not know it's close to the south and the bahamas so yeah if my pirate thing was on the dot i wasn't actually sure that they were close together so it's nice that they were i don't know i guess bermuda sounds pretty um pretty piratey so i guess that's where i drew it from i mean it's probably the most famous patch of water in the world so <laughs> yeah that's true well now you know there's a island right smack in the middle I'm really sorry I couldn't provide you with any um, ghosts or storms or anything. Yeah. It's just pretty humid and calm all the time from what I could see. I suppose it would be humid in, in, in Mayoita. Yeah, the amount of, it's not even humidity. It's just water being thrown up into the air. <laughs> yeah, it's just, they, it's they like, don't ah. have rain. They just have showers. It's constant like, poof. <laughs> uh, it's fun. It'd be a fun place to live if you ever got there. You know, I, I got shipwrecked there on my way to, on my way to England. And I ten would shipwreck again. <laughs> <laughs> I was going from Brazil to England. They just stepped, uh, stopped off in Oita for a bit. <laughs> I didn't realize your um your your Brazilian adventure there was um such a, like a Robinson Crusoe journey. Yeah, yeah. There's been other places as well. You'll come up in other, in other, in other I episodes. can't wait to hear the full, the full story of that. Full journey. Uh, well, for the break, could promote the blog again. So that's the room26.blogspot. And it's four chapters in. Or it will be four chapters in by the time you check it, dear listener. And yes, it's a fun. I'm getting through story I, I think it's quite it's quite a quite an interesting ride there's that and maybe at one point there'll be a youtube channel in the works uh. Ooh, i am plugging again um radical art review we are currently in a secret secret planning the title for our next print edition so come join on we've got poetry competitions we've got a new film club we've got great articles what's not to love and it's very lefty also and i'm not under an nda for this i'm writing for action fiction we are doing a DD supplement called the chromatic gamut so that's g-a-m-u-t and it will be coming out hmm, summerish i can tell you that much um, but there's gonna be a kickstarter for it so check it out because it's some beautiful, quirky, weird, gay content that I have written. And it's also quite spooky-ooky in places because I'm involved with it. Nice. Welcome to the second half of Where the Fuck Is That? Where the fuck is that? Where the fuck is that? In this second half, we are going to be talking about Jakar. So Matthew, 
What is Jakar like? Ooh, Jakar is definitely in a desert. I remember it well. I got a postcard actually for Jakar um, and it was like, come to Jakar. And it was like this beautiful picture of this sandstone building. I was like, oh, that sounds nice. And going to it, it seemed like quite a bustling place, really. I mean, in the middle of the desert, but kind of a cultural oasis, the sort of mountain that blocks most of the sandy winds coming up. So they've got all these like um, buildings on one side of the mountain and sort of as a blockage. And then all the rain that comes over, like comes down some the mountainside. So you've got some nice trees, some shade. There's some like um, aquifers, you know, like the underground water systems in the deserts. They also congregate here. A sort of plush or cushy version of desert living in that you have all the desert around you, but you've actually got all the luxury of it as well. I kind of saw it as, I mean, it's trying to be very cool and trying to be like very cultural, but I mean, it's kind of fake at the same time because of, okay. well, I'm, I'm just going to say it. Okay. So it's very into its movies and theaters and there's a lot of sets and stuff there. And they try and pass themselves off as being this like ancient and mysterious mm. like place. But really it's just like leftover props from like Brendan Fraser's The Mummy and like all those <laughs> other deserty films that are all set there. It's kind of like the Hollywood of, I mean, Hollywood's already in a desert, but the Hollywood of the desert desert. You know, if you need your desert scenes, you go to this place. Oh, that's, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's because... like uh, Vancouver for everyone else. <laughs> That's where you fly to if you need the desert scene. And then mm-hmm. the, 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 the sets just sort of leave things behind. Uh, they made a mint in the 90s with Indiana Jones and the mummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you never know, never recognize it because you just look at it and you're like, oh, that's just the desert, you know? People don't have that keen eye. The keen eye would be like, oh, I recognize that sand type. I recognize these mountain <laughs> ranges. It's the same place over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that brief beginning scene in, in The Exorcist? That's in, that's in Jakar. How did you know? <laughs> yeah. You, you know? must have stayed for the credits. <laughs> yeah. Featuring Jakar. Yeah. Thanks to the wonderful people of Jakar. <laughs> so uh, where is this desert located? It's hard to pinpoint, honestly, okay. because right. of, um, I don't know if you know about this phenomenon, but like in the um, high winds of like sandstorms and things like that, um, because of the magnetic magnetic impulses of the sand, um, they can like disrupt sort of signals. Um, oh. So as well as having terrible phone signal and the like, um, it also causes like things like GPS, radar, any satellite signals to be completely like combobulated, which is kind of good and bad because it's good in one sense that all these big Hollywood wigs can like have to know the location. Like they have to old school style, like chart out their course to get this place. Cause it means that only certain people have access to this city. And it means that like, you're not gonna have like the errant tourists just like going there for like five days to fuck about mm-hmm. it. You only have people who like really wanna go there, who really put in the time and usually are bringing some big business. Cause why would you spend this time like going there unless you're like serious about something? Right. It's in the Sahara, but it's mm, kind of- okay near to egypt but like not too close in that people could like stumble it off when they get like lost on their like camel trails to the pyramids mm-hmm. it's like the el dorado of movie sets <laughs> yeah it's it's the el dorado of north africa <laughs> great okay so i would just they're just so lucky that um the sand keeps gps from working but not cameras and all the other equipment you need no, of course. It's, really... <laughs> it's because you develop, you've got your um, special equipment for the desert. So you've got your like zip, you know, like zip up tents for like um, 
quarantine things and like films mm. where they have like the zip tent thing for like um dousing people down you put your cameraman and the crew in there and you just have a little window open like a perspect window for filming through so completely right, so proof from the sand would they rent that from jakar is that like them oh jakar low? has everything right. because See. you know you go there and you think oh i'm gonna shoot this movie we've already got the budget it's fine then jakar's like ah it's a five-day rental fee for that plus the insurance <laughs> on top of it they make a mint because they know um, what they're doing yeah, it's it's their their one thing. They're they're specialists. Exactly. At desert filming. <laughs> oh yeah, the good, bad, and the ugly. That was that must have been Jakar as well. That yeah, most people think it's um because it's like a spaghetti western. They think it's like shot in a certain area. Mm-mm. They want you to yeah. think that just for the diversity, so they can call it spaghetti western. It's yeah. actually a well, I won't get into the food yet. I was going to say I was going to give you a Jakarian dish, but I realized I'm. No, I'm preempting out, myself. That's out of order. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Next, what is the food like? What is the food like? Now I can say it. So a Jakarian dish is they're tiny, tiny little like they look like pebbles, but they're kind of um, in the family of the potato. Um, mm-hmm. But they're sort of a little tiny baby potato, and they're purplish, almost like a cross between a potato and a turnip in their sort of texture. So kind of hard, um, a gritty, bitter taste to them. But you boil these up and then you mash them down and you mix in some like um, like beans, uh, like fried beans and some green beans. And then you make this sort of mashed up like pot and then you serve that. And sometimes you can either serve it with salt or you can serve it with honey, which is like the fancier oh, one. Okay. So basically, well, refried beans are basically liquid anyway. So in, in, in other types of beans. So it's just uh, like a multicolored paste by the end? It's yeah, it's like the the potatoy things are um like kind of like a yellowish color, like a turnip. Mm. So you have that yellowish sort of texture to it. Then you've got like the orangish brownishness of the bean, and then for like the green beans, you've got a little bit of green coming through. Right, and you just serve them like in a bowl, or you spoon it. Yeah, it's called pato patan. Oh, great! Yeah, I mean, makes sense. <laughs> I was gonna say a pato patan western, but then I was like, oh, you wouldn't get that. Yeah. <laughs> So anything on the side can like I dip bread into it? You can sure go crazy dip some bread in it. Oh, okay. I mean, it's not people would look at you and be like, okay, it's like carb on carb action, but all right. Oh, okay. So I'm supposed to be satisfied with my mush. Well, I guess it's the same as Oita, but okay. I would just I would just spoon. I would argue this is a more natural mush than a boiled brine broth mush. Yeah, but the other mush has protein. I mean, true, but this is like a snack dish. You're not going to like eat oh, okay. this and be like, I'm done. You know, this is like a right. nice, like a light lunch. I see. So it's their signature dish, but it's not the, it's not, it's not your main dish. You could have it as a main dish if in the same way you could have like, I don't know, potatoes and beans as a main dish. I suppose it's possible. <laughs> it's possible, but like people would not. Yeah. <laughs> you also have just things like um, in terms of protein, you can have like a, uh, just like fried bugs is quite a big thing. Like mm. fried locusts, fried scorpion, that kind of thing. You've got like sometimes if you're very lucky, you get like um like a fried bearded lizard. Oh, okay. Well, this, the scorpions is like that. Is that with tail or without tail? Oh, with tail. The poison right. adds like that sort of like, because uh-huh. once you like fry up the poison enough, it becomes sort of non-lethal, but still makes yeah. your lips go numb. <laughs> no. I, I got to try that. <laughs> it sounds interesting. Yeah. Where do I find myself a scorpion? It's really good because you look like, um, what do you call her? Jennifer, what's her face from like American Pie? 
um, with like the giant lips by the end of it. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's like the Kylie Jenner challenge, but you look like the 4th of July makes me want a hot dog real bad. <laughs> so can I like a skewer a bug and then dip it in the other in a mash? You could, but it's more so served with like honey or they have like a sort of spiced mix sauce. Mm. And you do a dip in the sauce. That's when you're brave enough because you're already dealing with the like the uh, the venom. And then you're already dipping it into like, you know, a spicy chili sauce. You'd, you'd hope that the venom would numb enough. To, you wouldn't hope, actually, because if, if, you, if your taste buds are numb, then why are you eating at all? I guess. I guess it's for like the, the, the textural experience opposed to the taste of <laughs> like your mouth freezing over. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so with this interesting diet and their film way of life what are the people like very wealthy it's a very very wealthy city because it's got all this like big money coming over from um most of the america like americans are just like absolutely like throwing their money because they know they can get like a cheap well not cheap but like an easy essentially and well done set like they don't mm. have to do any more research they don't have to do any more investments they know okay we're just gonna have to set aside this money because we want to do it right you know so once that happens, you only need like, you know, a move, like one or two movies a year. And then that's pretty much set on like, um, like covering like the main overheads of the city. And then internally, it's sort of more capitalizing on all these very rich actors, models, directors, producers mm-hmm. who are coming in wanting to like spend money whilst they're in the city. So they have all the luxury items. They have like, um, like shisha bars, they have like, um, saunas and things like with like a big sort of um dug up like geothermal pools um there's like bars um which are very like you know opulent with like palm trees and like they serve like um dates for like you know 20 dollars a date it's like ridiculous but it's so high flattened you know cocktails and stuff in the middle of the desert it's sort of that sort of surreal elitism where you're just sort of Mm -hmm. looking out into this empty expanse but you know you're enjoying like you know a 24 karat gold like flavored steak or something yeah Um, it's sort of to get set their own prices because it's sort of separate from any other like influence exactly it's kind of it's kind of got a vegas vibe to it but mm. um if you imagine vegas but less seedy sort of like if la like high in la met vegas yeah but then in a hollywood desert right and combine the- these aspects <laughs> and then set it in north africa <laughs> sounds interesting so like a local would they engage with this like film culture or would they sort of be like eh, it's old hat uh all these famous actors like oh who even cares i mean it's kind of it is kind of shallow in a sense mm-hmm. um on one side um you've got the sort of the locals and from locals from like neighborhood like neighboring neighborhoods who come in and simply do you know like you know the sound people you know the backstage like runners assistants making like the cogs turn while connecting and facilitating other crews with their crews in the base the city and making sure that happens and like connects that's one aspect of it which is fine it serves its purpose the other aspect is the more shallow one of locals will sometimes appeal to american like ignorance essentially Mm -hmm. by being like oh i'm a pot seller and i've spent years making this pot for my family here buy this and you'll you know feed my family and they're like oh my god a genuine pot from the city like i will buy it how much and they're like three thousand dollars like i'll do anything and then you know this person gets into their mercedes benz and drives off because they're like sucker so it's just a lot (laughs) of basically 
people who are capitalizing on um, like stereotypes that people believe of like, oh, you live in the mm-hmm. desert, then you're an idiot, you know? They're yeah. actually just, they pick up like a simple trade, like, you know, pottery, or, you know, some of them might do some like glass blowing or something like very artisanal, make a few copies of things, do it cheaply, then sell them on for ridiculous profit. Yeah. So they can continue living in this quite inflated city. Like, dream catchers or talismans just like oh definitely wear this yeah. to uh, protect yourself from any spirits it's uh, they have a trade of like um drilling like holes into rocks and being like ah oh, the sand runner rock take this and you'll never be assaulted by the jinn and mm-hmm. they're like oh my god genies and they're like no jinn different they're like oh i better take this and you know it's just a rock and they're like oh, fuck you yeah <laughs> it's great and you come for the price in it because you know how how are you gonna how are you gonna price quant- possession. Quant- yeah. How are you going to quantify not being attacked by gin? You can't really. They're the only ones that can decide the price, you know? Exactly. Sometimes no it's a good trade aspect of um, they'll just say, like, how much is it? And they're like, how much is it to you? And then they're like, oh, my God. And they just, like, throw their checkbook. <laughs> yeah. So what was the city like in the past? <laughs> in the past, it's definitely a boom town. So in the past, it was, like, pretty much just desert. It was like like neighboring towns sort of would congregate for um, conferring business, for like market exchanges, that kind of thing. Every like once a month, there would be like um, a collection of people who would gather together, even just like to meet people like in these sort of across the desert, which is obviously is quite inhospitable and hard to travel. So they'd make one big journey off it and do everything at once. And then it became sort of people would set up and try and like establish themselves or they would need to do something or like, you know, maintain like, you know, cattle trains or something like that. And so they'd have to have a base and that base mm-hmm. grew slowly and slowly and slowly and slowly. And eventually they had more like a large town of just sort of a shanty town in the desert that mm-hmm. was sort of quite difficult to maintain. And it wasn't until just complete um, serendipity, really, that Brendan Fraser was walking through the desert at one point because right. Brendan Fraser is actually quite a man of culture. But he was on one of these camel trains, basically, or camel caravans, um, riding through, and he made a pit stop at this um, at this sort of shanty town in the middle of the desert, sort of to refuel. And he was like, you know, this this is just this would be perfect. Have you heard of the Mummy? And they're like, no. And they're like, we're filming this film, the Mummy, and like it will be great if could you can I get your number? And then it just sort of like blew up from there. And it was quite difficult at the first because they couldn't really get any cell reception because yeah. of the winds. So Brendan Fraser goes back and he says, guys, I think this is a great idea. And then the mummy had just been like basically green-lighted as a script at that point. Ding, bang, bong. Hollywood did its thing. They flew the people in. Brendan Fraser led the way. Um, eventually, overnight, like they're like setting up whole like makeshift like buildings, trailers, construction work was going on crazy. Um, eventually, they're like setting up like oh, there's so many people coming over. We need a hotel. Oh, we've got a hotel. We need catering staff to feed the people in the hotel. We need a restaurant. Okay, we have a restaurant. We need people to supply the restaurant. We need shops. We need roads. Boom. And then suddenly this immense symbol of both human tenacity and horrible hyper-capitalism blended into (laughs) one and created this um, beautiful, gilded, but absolutely hollow and shallow city (laughs) that rose from like the dust to sort of profit in this sort of make-believe, this sort of imaginary city that creates imaginary things. Yeah, does this, this uh, like, do they regard Brendan Fraser highly then? So oh like yeah, there's a big... few statues of him. Oh, okay. Mostly of his, like, his eponymous roles. So you've got Brendan Fraser as Brendan Fraser in The Mummy, 
you know, he's mm-hmm. mid run Brendan Fraser, like who's like attached to like one of the restaurants as Brendan Fraser in George of the Jungle. Right. You know, you know different. It's kind of like there's like um, one of those like tourist trails of like, you know, find all the Brendan Fraser statues in the city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, the rest of Brendan Fraser's um, filmography escapes me right now because I haven't been to the city in some time. And I also uh, find the tour right. quite tacky because they'd be like, oh, you know, my family needs the Brendan Fraser statues, you know, to, to eat. And I'm like, I know your game. I'm not falling mm-hmm. for that one. Oh, I see. So they also sell like Brendan Fraser miniatures then. Oh, definitely. Like, oh, a genuine lock of Brendan Fraser's hair. And you're like, I've seen so many locks of Brendan Fraser's <laughs> hair in this city that I could grow a Brendan Fraser. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's a, a great a great man <laughs> good old Brandon Fraser they just needed a mascot really and then mm. another thing to sell yeah mascots are, are profitable uh, I'm sure he's he's signed off on him his likeness being used by Jakar till the end of time I, I don't think he has honestly I feel like he got like an initial it's kind of like um the author of like the Witcher series like he got initial payment and then he's like oh, oh I did not expect this shanty town to turn into an absolute metropolis right so now he's, he's a just, bit better why do you think Brendan Fraser isn't in mainstream television anymore film it's because he was so angry about this this missed <laughs> opportunity he's like you know what I'm not trusting anyone in this industry anymore yeah. <laughs> he just quit and doing whatever he's doing now uh, some say he's still there actually in the desert city still trying to fight some lawsuits oh no that's interesting Maybe he's even like a penning the the next mummy sequel, and then he's gonna make sure it doesn't take place in Jakar. <laughs> the thing is, no one, no one with any right mind in the business will film like a desert scene outside of Jakar because why? Why would you? Everything's there. Yeah, yeah. There's something like, you know, when you see CGI, even if it's good CGI, you know that it's not a real person. It's like seeing anywhere, any desert scene that's not Jakar. You're like, hmm. Yeah, it it's feels a bit something, off. Something, it's something off, but that sand is not the right color. <laughs> it has to be like, it has to be deliberately set somewhere else and like a named place. Like um, Breaking Bad has like deserty landscape, but because you know it's like Arizona, then it's fine because you're like, oh, it's meant to be Arizona. This is Arizona. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But anywhere that's meant to be like some fantasy fic- fictitious place that's meant to be sort of um, nameless, you mm-hmm. have to use your car because everywhere else is too like, too branded or too known you know what i mean yeah yeah no definitely so uh, what what should i do other than buy stuff i mean oh, yeah buy stuff go to all these restaurants and that kind of thing clubs nightlife etc mm-hmm. um there also of course is the brendan fraser statue tour there's a lot of uh like you know walks and um bus tours and stuff like that there's like at least a thousand people who will tell you that they're the one and only guide for the city right you know, take you through all the secret back streets, that kind of thing. It's all kind of much of a muchness though. They're all like owned by one company, like this one like tourism <laughs> company who just pretend to have multiple different like walks and things. Mm-hmm. As a tourist outside of like falling into the sort of the revenue stream of just, you know, go do this activity, go camel riding, go do this, you know, all these like really high price, like celebrity, like angled sort of activities. The best thing to do is anything that is kind of unofficial or possibly dare I say illegal because it's the one thing that is kind of real about the city that isn't just like glitzy the best thing to do is probably to break into some unknown celebrities caravan because there's so many about them around just have a snoop that's a pretty fun thing to do (laughs) snoop around the place stuff yeah 
if you get caught, you just say, oh, the, the, the gin made me do it. And they're like, oh, no. Oh, my God, you poor thing. I'll give you my stone. <laughs> yeah, they have to sell you the amulet then. And then you completely forget because they're so, so driven by that. <laughs> exactly. Um, the there's some, like, neighboring towns as well if you want more of, like, an actual look into, you know, people living normal lives or especially all these people who work in the city and then leave in the weekends and go back to their actual homes because they don't right. live in this experience. It depends what you're looking for. But you could have a, simply a great time just, you know, partying, eating well, going to like really like commercialized museums, which like have all this very fictitious like history of like, <laughs> you know, oh, and then there is, you know, this this great battle. And then, the you know, once um, Brennan Fraser fought off like a thousand mummies, he then wrote the script for the mummy. <laughs> right, yeah. So the their their town history is based on the mummy lore. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And then you have like addendums as more and more films are created. Like, oh, and also, didn't you know, like Harrison Ford, like find the inspiration for Indiana Jones from like the town mayor. Hmm. Stuff like that, completely fabricated, just to sell more money, sell more movies. Well, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do in a in, you do. In desert desert society. The real Jakar. <laughs> uh huh. It's not in the desert, actually. God darn it! <laughs> Jakar is part of the country of Bhutan, and Bhutan is a constitutional monarchy. Hmm. So yeah, that's like an absolute monarchy but with more rules in place to regulate their power. And Jakar is located in the Bhutan Valley of um, Bhutan, and it's south of the Wangchuk Centennial Park, which is the kingdom's largest national park. So it's like a legit kingdom because they, wow. they, have, they have a monarchy. And it has a subtropical highland climate. And because... Of previous remarks about my saying terms without explaining them, <laughs> join me in a magical journey for what that means. So, a um, what's it called again? A subtropical highland climate is a variant of an oceanic climate. Specifically, it exists within elevated portions of the world that are within the tropics or subtropics. Despite the latitude, the higher altitudes of these regions mean that the climate tends to share characteristics with oceanic climates, which I haven't explained yet, but I believe I will soon. <laughs> so though we can experience noticeably drier weather during the lower sun winter season than oceanic climates. In locations outside the tropics, it's essentially identical to the oceanic climate with mild summers and noticeably cooler winters Plus, in some instances, snowfall. So, yeah, that's what a subtropical highland climate means. So, an oceanic climate, but drier, but out of this tropical sort of sphere, it just means tropical. Yes. Okay. It's also very much defined in terms of the oceanic climate, which I now realize I haven't brought up. <laughs> It's just higher. It's, I assume oceanic <laughs> is like more close to the ocean or southern, like Oceania. Yeah, let's just say it's mild summers and cooler winters. Let's it just sounds say nice. That. That's what it sounds like. Nice, yeah. Uh, Jakar has a population of over 6,000 people. So it's the smallest city to feature to date. 
I was gonna say that doesn't even sound possible. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's very small. It's basically a town. So as part of Bhutan, the the takian is Jakar's national animal, and make sure to look that up because they're like <laughs> muscle builder goats. Oh, they're very interesting. <laughs> I had never seen that animal before. I was like, wow, this exists. It's always nice to come across an animal that you haven't seen before because you're like, oh. You think you know them all, don't yeah, you? Like, exactly, you just assume yeah. I know all animals. Yeah. So it's not like just tigers and elephants. There are, there's also... Bears, so am I. So what's the food like? So uh, Ashikar is small. And his Wikipedia page is pretty sparse. <laughs> I have to research Bhutan cuisine in general uh, to get a pin on of what they would eat. You so. are forgiven. <laughs> So, yeah, thanks. Here we go. They eat rice, buckwheat, and increasingly maize. So those are the staples of Bhutanese cuisine. So like a lot of a lot of grains. And the local diet also includes pork, beef, yak meat, chicken, and lamb. Interestingly, not no no takin meat. So I guess you don't eat your national animal. <laughs> it feels like a bit of a hit crime, you know. Or... <laughs> Just have Americans dining on the bald eagles. Uh, I, there's bound to be some Americans, like the Rothschilds, who probably eat bald eagle. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, what, that's what makes a true American, is what they would believe. <laughs> Anyways, the uh, Amadachi is... Um, oh, no, I, I, skipped, I skipped a part. Anyway, soups and stews and meat <laughs> and dried vegetables spiced with chilies and cheese are prepared. And that's the Amadachi, which is made very spicy with cheese and chilies. It might be called the national dish for its ubiquity and the pride that the Bhutanese people have for it. It might be called that. It doesn't actually call it that. So I don't think it is the national dish. But It sounds it's... like something you would eat, though. Like very cheesy, very spicy. Yeah, cheese and chilies. Yeah, no, definitely. I might have to try and remake it. Yeah, dairy foods, particularly butter and cheese from yaks and cows are also popular and almost all milk is turned into butter and cheese i thought to include this because like you think that um the whole lactose thing is really just in western cultures but they they have a lot of dairy here in uh in jakar so i thought that was interesting yeah also the fact that a lot of the milk is turned into cheese like i always think it's cheese is like the side product to milk not the main thing yeah so yeah, they have a lot of they have a lot of cheese here and, Jesus and Christ. Chilies. Popular beverages include butter tea. So I guess Ooh. that's where the butter is going. Ooh, no. no, surely that's not what I think it is. I, I don't know. I, I hope so. Uh, butter tea and black tea and then locally brewed rice wine. Mm, very nice. Bhutan is the first country in the world to have banned the sale of tobacco. And wow. Tobacco Act of 2010. I feel like it must be quite easy, though, when you've only got 6,000 people to like make these huge like yeah. changes in policy. Well, unfortunately that was about boot the country. Oh, uh, the, oh well, wow. <laughs> so the country is banned tobacco. Oh, which sorry. I means yeah. the city has as well. But then also, I guess they are quite an absolute monarchy. So how, how is the process of like banning and voting? I wonder, is it democratic yeah, or I, do they just make decisions for the people? I think it's constitutional monarchy means it's a, uh, that it wouldn't be democratic, but the, the there would be like certain rules in place to to determine what a king could do. 
which I guess means they could just be like, don't smoke. And then everyone's just like, sort of cool. We can't smoke anymore. Anyways. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> what are the people like? So there's quite a lot of the people uh, of Jakar in Bhutan at large. So Jakar, like the rest of the Boomfang district and its neighbors, is culturally part of Eastern Bhutan. So I guess there is an east sort of east-west divide if they've made east that coast, distinction. West coast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize, people of Jakar. Uh, while the Zonka is the national language of uh, administration and instruction, local languages include Boofang and Brokat. Great names. Yeah. Oof. It's a lot of uh, strong syllables there. Jakar is famous throughout Bhutan for its distinctive and brightly colored woven wool items which are called the Yifra. Didn't expect They're, that. Yeah, pretty artisanal, I, I think. Is that what artisanal is? Yeah, like artaza, artisan, yeah, craftsman. Okay. And rooted deep within Bhutan culture is the idea of selflessness. And the women of Bhutan take on their role in the context of the household. So some Bhutanese communities have what is referred to as matrilineal communities, which I've, this is what I found like a, very interesting. So the eldest daughter receives the largest share of the land. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Seems Maybe progressive, go off. right? Yeah. Uh, but is there a catch? Yeah. Oh, fuck me. Okay. <laughs> this is due to the belief that she will stay and take care of her parents while no. the son will move out and work. <laughs> they were <laughs> so close. <laughs> yeah. So the son will move out and work to get his own land and for his own family. Importantly, land ownership does not necessarily equate to economic benefits because despite the oldest daughter having control of the house, it is the husband that is in charge of making the decisions. Oh, I guess that comes from a place that's run by a king. Yeah. However, the younger generation stepped away from this belief in splitting the land evenly between the children instead of the eldest daughter inheriting months of the land. Oh, the kids are all right. The kids are all right. Yeah, it's 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 more fair, but also the eldest daughter no longer gets the bigger share of the land, so it's like it sucks for the small population of eldest daughters. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what was the city like in the past? So the town is the, the site of Chikar Lakang, a small and unassuming temple which marks the site of the Iron Palace of Sindhu Raja, the Indian monarch who is believed to have first invited. Guru Rinpoche of Tu Bhutan in 1746. The current building is said to have been constructed by someone in the Bhutan <laughs> century. <laughs> oh, I'm going to explain everything this time. <laughs> okay, I'll say it's it's Terton Dorje Lingpa. And according to the Jakar foundational myth, which I found cool because cities don't usually have foundational myths. Yeah, true. <laughs> I guess Kiev had one, but so according to the Jakar foundational myth, a roosting white bird signaled the proper and auspicious location to found a monastery around 1549. Wow. And the settlement thus earned the moniker Jakar, which means white bird. Whoa, that was what a twist. I love that. <laughs> so the bird sat there and it was like, hey, guys, this is a cool place to build a monastery. And then they named the city after him. It's very biblical, like the, the doves going out from Noah's Ark. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I found it cool because it's like you don't really get city names having anything to do with like why they were founded, I guess. Like, what does London even mean? 
or Birmingham. Probably means something. So what should I do in Jakarta? So the area is located in a spacious and tree-covered valley, and therefore it's a popular tourist destination, presumably for like, like trees. Yeah, hikers and nature. Oh yeah, because there was like a lot of cool. Yeah, I'm getting to that part. Never mind. We'll get there. <laughs> so it's a good place for tourists. And consequently, the town is served by several good quality hotels and craft shops. And there are also many guest houses. So the bazaar is located in the street of a single story buildings in an area of the town called Shamka. And a new bazaar consisting of three story traditional buildings in the Daikling area was planned to be completed in 2010, but it never was. Oh, so, why? Why was it completed? What's that mystery? But basically, they've really built up this area because of the the spacious valley around it. And that's because Jakar and Bhutan at large are like a model for conservation. So they're actually, Bhutan is carbon negative. (gasps) Whoa, Um, that's impressive. Yeah. And it's really, it's like a lot of conservation efforts that including the national park I mentioned earlier. So I think part of the reason why it's a big touristy location is because it's south of that national park. So maybe people stop on this way there, on the way there mm-hmm. in, in Jakar. So, yeah. I, I mean, like, I'm not sure what I think about, like, a monarchy having absolute power. But at the same time, they do seem to be handling things quite well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, so let me find it exactly because I, I had stats on um on Bhutan's carbon emissions. I think it's just something that happened because they're so small, and then I guess obviously yeah. they have so much so so much land in terms of forested land. So yeah, yeah. I think even then, like I, they need props for it because they could very easily have turned that into like I don't know some like oiling rig or completely deforested it and yeah. made a lot of money. That's true. Chose not to. So the co- the forests uh, cover about seventy two percent of the country. Oh, glorious! So that's why they're carbon negative because it's just like a huge carbon sink. Props so he- hence hence the Jakar being a, a touristy place and people just out exploring nature. I suppose it's a lot of hippies. Yeah. So so that's Jakar. I hmm. I'm still thinking about the Iron Palace, though, because that sounds like a great fantasy kingdom, like the Iron Palace. Mm. Sounds, like, terrifying. I'm picturing, like, all sort of, like, black spikes coming out of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very metal name. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm not, I'm not actually sure it looks like that. <laughs> I, I highly doubt it's, like, a foreboding, you know, iron fortress, but <laughs> it's probably quite beautiful. If you look up Jakar, it should be the first, the only picture that appears of it. It's just white and red. But, you know, I don't have much time left. My door will be kicked down at any moment. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for taking um, the risk to your life to get this information over. I hope you enjoyed exchanging it for ridiculous detail about one city in Japan. No, yeah, it's, uh, I really appreciate knowing how many mountains a city has uh, it's really, it's really my niche. Yeah, it's a, it's a twenty mountains exactly. I, I, I memorized, you know, how many mountains in London. I think I have to go zero. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a that was a quite an endeavor, you know, trying to count them all.
Mm. Well, make sure the next time you watch, you know, as soon as I put that like brownie yellow filter on a movie, look at the credits afterwards and see where it was filmed and you'll get a nice surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jakara gets a four out of five, not a five mm. out of five because of its strange politics, but because it's doing so well for the environment, it deserves a little boost. Wuita is the only place where you get to go in the lava river so five out of five for my fictional one that is and true in the real one i really like the translation service i think that's really <laughs> cool. cool plus i'd like to go see some white monkeys in a steam what, what's it what's it called again? On, onsen onsen like a, a hot spring hot spring yeah that's the name i was gonna say steam pool but <laughs> that's i mean not... <laughs> you can also go to umi tamago the big sea egg i mean I just go around trying to chill with the monkeys. And also, if I get in trouble, I know I can call that line. So I don't really have... Your one, your one get-out-of-jail call is to the translation service. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, please please translate how I get out of prison, please. <laughs> yeah. Please please convince them for me. I'm not a risk. Can you translate, uh, let me go. I have diplomatic <laughs> immunity. I come but... from the kingdom. I don't think I don't think I can find any faults, so it get it get a five out of five too. Hell yeah! I feel like they're the kind of people that if they ever listened to this podcast, they would personally invite you to their city. Yeah, no, I definitely know how much they care, so I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna not gonna give you anything less than than perfection, Oita. Indeed, indeed, we're all friends here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for sharing uh, this Thank episode. You. Oh, where the fuck is that? Where the fuck is that? And we know it is in... Oita! At your car. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Good Bye. night. <laughs> Bye. Bye.